Ananta Juriapa took the position as inaugural director of the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development, or the MGIEP, based in New Delhi, India, in 2014. A science policy pace setter with over 35 years of experience, he now plays a key role in positioning UNESCO MGIEP as a leading science and evidence-based research institute on education for peace, sustainable development and global citizenship. Anantha Duryapa, welcome to the Creative Process One Planet podcast. Great to be here and thank you for the invitation. So I just am I'm so honored to have your participation and just looking at really your life's work and the establishment of the Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development. You know, it's just wonderful because so much that we think about in our current educational models is about specialization or preparing people for jobs, but not embracing the whole person, the tree of knowledge. You have so many wonderful initiatives, but first tell us, you know, why you decided to found the Institute and what was your path to becoming an educator? Okay. Well, I think which was uh, gaining traction rather than your traditional economic growth kind of approach and paradigm. And at the same time, notion of peace and sort of saying, how could we improve our education in a way to inculcate the kind of competencies that one would need to actually even tackle these very challenging issues. And as we can see, you know, these are global issues. And I think you need that kind of change in mindset and so the institute was established. Now, as it was put forward by a proposal by India, and there was a discussion about naming an institute after a personality, and in this case, it's the great Mahatma, there wasn't much resistance, but this was the first institute with the name of a personality. But who can have problems with having an institute named after Mahatma Gandhi? So, and especially for issues on peace in particular, less so for sustainability, but definitely for peace. So in UNESCO, when you wanted to establish a category one institute, it has to be agreed by all 193 member states. So it goes through a long process. You have to do a feasibility study. You have to sort of say whether there's a need, is there's a relevance. And then in the country where it's going to be located for funding and at these times and stuff. So it's a very long process, which takes, in the case of the Gandhi Institute, took, I think, about 10 years or so. But in 2012, it was uh, inaugurated. And it was inaugurated by then the Director General of UNESCO, Irena Bokoba, and the President of India. So it is something very prestigious for the country as well to have a category one. There are not many around, and this is the first one in Asia Pacific, and it's the only one in Asia Pacific. Most of the other institutes, I believe there are seven. Most of the others, especially when they're looking at a global mandate, primarily in Europe, and then we have a number of regional institutes, which of course, because of the fact that they're regional, are located in those regions. I'm happy to say that this is the first institute outside Europe which I believe by the nature of peace and sustainability has to be a global mandate. It cannot be a regional uh, institute because sustainability is so interdependent 
I always like to use the butterfly effect of the nonlinear systems in a sense in a small village in India, something that happens can have an impact across the world. We have to understand that we have to get global cooperation and work as one family. So that's the category one institute. Now, the institute could have gone two ways. One is take a very traditional approach towards, and there are many institutes on sustainability and many institutes on peace. But, you know, we were looking at that and we did a mapping exercise. And and there was a phrase by Gandhi, which kind of caught our attention. And is that his life, my life is my message. And we sort of felt, okay, how could we establish a kind of a program that will try to see how we could inculcate the kind of competencies that he had developed over a lifespan on being the kind of person he is. Now, he was a human being, which means he had his faults as well. It's not like a put on a pedestal of a God-like person. He learned from experiences, he learned from mistakes, and he had mindsets which were very different when he was young to when he was old. So that whole experience, now how do we try to design a program that we could replicate that or train the brain? And I'll tell you why we use that word brain to train the brain in such a way that we try to become a Gandhi. And most of us won't, but at least the struggle too is already, we have achieved our goal. So that's how the Institute started off with its own unique work program. And, And we kind of talk about the whole thing about firing Gandhi neurons. And basically that's, we borrowed a lot from the sciences. Now, my background as somebody who started in applied maths and physics, and then for a short period of insanity, took a MBA and joined a bank, but very quickly came back into, I would sort of say reality in terms of doing a PhD in economics and getting to understand the notion of human behavior. So with that background, I I always felt that science and evidence has to be the guiding force in the way that we design our programs. Of course, understanding people as humans, people as not just rational human beings. That's another thing that I also learned during my journey is that the whole notion of a rational human being is used as an assumption to make our economic model simple, but we know that we are very irrational human beings. Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, basically debunked the whole notion of rationality as the ultimate paradigm for policy and decision-making. And he brought in the whole notion of him and Dan Arley, especially in terms of predictably irrational. So we have to delve into the world of irrationality so the whole notion of training the brain is, is borrowed significantly from some of the latest research that's coming out from the neurosciences, and especially neurosciences and education and learning. 
And, and you know, I was aghast to find how little science is influencing education. And, you know, many of the critics of our education system, starting from Ken Robinson to Sugita Mitra, have always said that this is one particular sector that has not changed over 300 years. It's, it's so resistant to change, and, and I'm not sure why. But I think we are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel and where we have this large number of different disciplines, positive psychology, clinical psychology, educational psychology, all having now a lot of things to say in the way that we design our uh, education systems, but also understanding the way we learn. Because the best way to have an education system is to get some understanding of the way we learn. Now, it's like space. It's going to be an endless journey because our brain is so complex. <laughs> the number is billions of neurons and networks. But we do have some good research to help us train our brains to kind of achieve the life that we would like to achieve. And so that's why we use the term education for human flourishing. It's not education to build human capital, but human flourishing. And that's very important. If I use an economic term, will be a positive externality out of that. Because when we go for flourishing, we want to excel in the things that we enjoy and be passionate about. And when we are passionate and we enjoy, we do really good things. I think that that is so beautiful. And it's really necessary because, as you say, our current models, they're industrial models of education. It's like a product-based. It's not about the well-being, as you say. And it's so true, and anyone can observe it, that we learn emotionally because we are human beings. We're not machines. And I feel like a lot of education, although there's certainly many enlightened approaches, have been approaching the brain like it's a machine. And yet it is a machine with these you know, if you want to say it's chemicals, but these emotions, our perceptions are bathed in emotions. And so as an artist, I certainly know that I learn better when I'm making, creating something. So your initiatives to just acknowledge that and improve the systems are wonderful. And in terms of it taking its inspiration from Gandhi, you have many um, you know, wonderful campaigns. One is the, the kindness campaign. Tell us about some of the acts that you've been heartened by that you've documented with this project. Well, you know, every act, however small, and we made the classic mistake because we've been trained in the old system on trying to find a hierarchy. And we've developed a complex system of saying ranking kindness. And then we, after a while, we kind of sat back and say, aren't we doing the very, very same thing that we are trying to unpack? Because every act of kindness, even by the fact of saying a kind word to your parent, <laughs> parents are our typical bashing boards that we have, just to say, you know, thank you for taking care of me or thank you for giving me what I have, it already makes a day for everybody, not only the person that received that term, but those who also say it. Because we know from the research, again, I go back to the neurosciences, that it really releases all the feel-good neurotransmitters, the endorphins and the dopamines and so forth and so on. So why not? It's a very cheap chemical substitute instead of taking kind of 
substances to relieve stress, do a kind act. It will do the exact same thing. It will release the same neurotransmitters that will make you feel good. So we've kind of gone across the world to sort of say, you know, to achieve the sustainable development goals, which all countries have agreed on, 17 goals, 2015, we think that you have to think of the other. You should not do something just for the fact that what is it going to be for me before thinking about the other. So the whole act of kindness we found is a necessary condition to achieve the SDGs. Give you an example, poverty, SDG one, to reduce poverty. You know, I think an act of kindness brings in the notion of sustainability into the whole act of reducing poverty, rather than just sort of saying, I'm gonna give you some money, and then it ends at that. That's only a momentary effect. But to reduce poverty in a sustainable way such that it never comes back. The fact is I do it because I want to do it. It's a constitutive element of my well-being, my flourishing, that I want to help another, not for the sake of myself, but for the other, and trying to understand the other on why they are struggling and to empathize with why they are in the situations that they are in. I don't think anybody likes to be in a state of poverty. There are so many circumstances that force them to be into those situations and to try to understand that. And in that process, to do something about it is the act of kindness. And so we thought that that should be a central part of action. So, you know, one of the things that I mentioned earlier on that we didn't want to take a traditional route by just producing these great papers on why kindness, on why empathy, it becomes an intellectual exercise. Reading about empathy or reading about kindness doesn't make you automatically a kind person. You need to do it. It's all about action and agency and change. So the act of kindness is action, is empathy in action. That's what we would say. Well, it's certainly uh, beautiful. And I think that everyone, we're born into this world, but we lose it, right? We risk losing it. So we have to be reminded or, you know, often these acts of kindness don't go appreciated. They're done quietly. And so anything that encourages that, uh, I I think is really beautiful. Actually, I was reflecting on what is the nature of beauty the other day. And I think it is when someone is so intent in an activity They're not thinking about themselves, like you say, an act of kindness, that they flourish in their own beauty by thinking about the other, by focusing on something else. And it's just graceful and beautiful to observe. What for you is the purpose of education and what teachers have been important for your development and your mission with these projects? I think education should be both, well, As I mentioned earlier, education for human flourishing has to be the central tenant of education, the ability to achieve a life one has reason to value. So if I would want to be a a carpenter because I love working with my hands, I love transforming wood or any other material into something that is useful, then that's what I should be allowed to pursue and be respected at the very same level as somebody, as a cardiologist who loves to explore and sort of say, work with the human heart in terms of providing that kind of relief. So 
you know, that whole hierarchy is just gone. It's about passion and it's about letting the person explore themselves. That's how I think education uh, should be. It should not be a mechanized. It should be a place to explore. It's a place to have dialogues. We had this particular style of education. If you go back to Aristotle and Socrates, if you go back to the Vedas in India, uh, as well as in China and so forth, but it was only provided for an elite group. And so therefore it became a very elite activity. Then we moved into the industrial area and the whole idea was to provide education to the masses. But then what we lost in the mechanization of education, we forgot about the dialogic, about the debate and so forth, because we felt that we couldn't allow that because we had to educate the masses. But I think we have reached a stage where we actually now can provide this kind of an education, this dialogic, this debate, this inquiry, what I call this inquiry, plus a humanistic approach to education so that we care for each other. It's not about beating the other. You see, that's what's happened with the mechanization. It's about pitting us against each other. The whole assessment exercise that we do, it has taken a life of its own. I don't think those assessments really measure whether we have learned about something. It's about memorization and about passing an exam to get to the next step, rather than sort of saying, have I learned? Have I really understood what this is? What is the relevance of this to society? What is the relevance of this to my life? How can I use this for the betterment of society and so forth and so on? So we have to get back to that. And I think technology is going to support that. The holy grail of education, the individualized learning, I think is in the grasp of our, our hands with the advancement of technology and artificial intelligence. Now, many people say, oh, you gotta be very careful. You gotta be, because there's a lot of problems. Well, everything has its, its issues and, and we need to be cognizant of that. We need to put into systems that will prevent that being abused. But this is where I always say, you train our young people in social emotional learning, which means the whole notion of emotion regulations, empathy to think about the other, compassion. The probability of people becoming predatorial will be minimized already in the first place because the mindset is different. I'm not pitting against each other. Wouldn't it be a wonderful world if we have an education system where you are your own benchmark and not somebody else? I think that's so beautiful. And I think it's, we're coming together. We originally were supposed to speak on Earth Day and we have one of our participating students, Megan Luff. She focuses particularly on environmental education. And it's exactly that we need to collaborate and not be pitted against each other. We're never going to get there. Megan. Hi, thank you so much for coming. I definitely agree with everything you just said. When I was in school myself, it definitely felt like all we were doing was learning to be competitive with one another training to be successful but in a success in terms of money so I definitely appreciate sort of what you're saying about social emotional learning I was very curious about what you just said about the use of technology and how that will help with social emotional learning especially in the pandemic where people have been you know relying on technology so much more I wondered if you could explore more about that because I haven't really heard about this idea of specifically using technology and artificial intelligence to encourage social emotional learning so it's a great question because I think the first thing when you comes to a person's mind when I say technology and social emotional learning is, isn't this oxymoronic? 
<laughs> but I think if one sticks to the principles of what uh, a social emotional learning process is, and I'm not sort of saying it's a great substitute for face-to-face, -face, but what I'm sort of saying is, let's say you take an issue of, well, there's no denying that we live on one planet and a very finite, and it's an extremely small blue dot in the solar system. Sometimes it seems so petty that we are fighting against each other. And we had this experiment, what we did at the Institute, is we had five schools from five countries. So five schools in each country, and then across five countries. So about 25 schools altogether. From the Midwest in the United States, we had a school from Norway, we had a school from Sri Lanka, we had a school from Malaysia, we had a school from India. And in India, we had two, one from a very elite school and one from the slums schools and stuff. And we had a discussion on migration. And so the way we do social emotional learning is not to sort of talk about emotion regulation and then do the exercise and then talk about empathy and then do the exercise. We take an issue which is a contemporary issue. And in this case, we took migration. And we started asking questions and say, what does it mean to be a migrant? What is your perception of migration? And then how do you think of her? And some of our students actually have migrant families. So how did they feel? And technology was able to connect this across the world, which we could never have done without technology. Yeah. And with the kind of visual as well as audio, we, of course, in an ideal world, it would have been great to have brought them all in one physical space and had a discussion over a span of 10 weeks, but that's impossible to do. So technology allows them in terms of providing that connection and then together doing mindfulness activities. So when we talk about migration and it starts getting heated up where there are different perspectives from different perceptions from different countries. And we can sort of say, so how do you feel? And some say, you know, I feel frustrated. I feel anxious. I feel angry. All these different emotions uh, are being portrayed by the students. We go in and say, okay, let's do a mindfulness activity right now. And we go into a mindfulness. We take them out of that space of all those conflicting emotions, go through a mindfulness, get their breathing down, you know, the typical mindfulness activities and then come back into the discussions. And then we start to do the perspective taking where we group them into either pairs or maybe into three, and then to sort of listen. And one of the things that we don't teach our children and even myself, I sometimes find myself is, I don't listen. When somebody is talking, I already have made my positions and then I wait for that person to finish their sentence. And then I'm saying what I wanted to say for right from the start rather than sort of, really listening to this person and then trying to understand this person from their perspective and not from your own perspective. That's not easy at all. And that's a reflexive exercise that I think should be doing continuously. And it becomes second nature, that reflexive exercise. And then we talk about compassion. So what can you do about this? And, you know, in your little way, what can you do? You don't have to change the world, but in your own little way, what could you do? And one of the things that we found within the Indian schools is that the kids from migrant families, many of their parents were actually the garbage collectors. And they were ashamed of that. And on top of that, the kids from the more affluent part of society, they were very surprised. These saying, my God, these kids are very smart. 
It's just because they couldn't speak English, but with the but with the kind of questions they were asking, it was very insightful. And so the respect went up for each other. And then the respect of the kids for their own parents went up because we asked who is going to take care of the garbage if they are not doing it, right? They're essential members of society. And so immediately the respect goes up and then we sort of say, so do something about it. So the next time the garbage collector comes to your house, maybe sit there, have a chat with him or give him a bottle of water or something because they live really tough lives. So I think in a small way, we start changing the kind of mindsets that we do. So that's how we build in the, the social emotional in through the technology forum. Now, artificial intelligence, what we do is because there's so much data that is being generated by these discussions and by this stuff, for a teacher to go through that is extremely difficult. So the AI algorithms kind of filter that and they use the kind of sophisticated models that they have to try to give some idea of what's happening, what is the sentiment analysis, what is the emotional dimensions that are growing within that particular discussions and kind of guide the teacher, right? It doesn't take over the teacher, but guide the teacher. But the teachers have to be trained in social emotional learning as well. You know, one of the things when we had a conference two years ago before COVID, and our main stars were five children. They were our distinguished guests. Rather than bringing in, you know, heads of agencies or ministers, our chief guests were five children. And we had a discussion. And one of the child, the smallest one actually, said, I would love that the teacher does not shout at me. Right? That's social emotional learning for the teachers. So that's how we blend in technology and the social dimensions of education. My name is Megan Luck, and I'm currently doing a master's in environmental conservation education at New York University. I'm an associate interviews producer and interviewer at The Creative Process. Anantha's comments on sustainability in education are particularly fascinating to me, as someone who is studying environmental education. I love this idea of the kindness campaign, that the acts that someone does do not have to actually relate to sustainability at all, but should in turn result in more sustainable behaviour. By teaching people love and respect, people should want to do better for the planet and for those who share it with them. When I think about my own path and my friends' paths to sustainability, I realise that many of us started out interested in social justice issues or animal rights issues before becoming interested in the environment all coming from a place of compassion for other beings first. That may not be everyone's path to sustainability, but it is certainly a path worth exploring. I'm also intrigued by Nantha's comments on technology. Most of what I study in my education program involves learning how to get students outside and away from technology, not sitting inside and embracing it. But Anantha's comments reminded me of the many benefits technology can have, such as connecting with people across the globe to see things from a new perspective. Not only is this beneficial to learning, but in this case, to the actual planet as well, as flying students across the world to talk to each other is a lot more environmentally damaging than talking over Zoom. I myself have been using technology to connect with people across the world for the past academic year, as the pandemic resulted in all of my classes being taught online. I have had classmates tune in from Canada, Dubai, China, 
and many American states far away from where my university is actually located. Technology allowed us to continue to connect and learn from one another and share different perspectives on environmental issues and policies. I think it can be easy to dismiss technology in the environmental education field because as Anantha says, the idea of technology and the environment together can seem oxymoronic. But I think technology can be used to enhance environmental education when used deliberately and mindfully. Part of my own class projects have been to design environmental programs that can be done online. This has included creating virtual field trips by using Google Maps and 360 imaging of outdoor areas, or by creating videos of spaces to then share with students at home. This has also included creating worksheets that can be downloaded from the internet and then used to guide outdoor activities for families in their local environment. Of course, you can also use technology in the field, such as using your phone to take photos of interesting plants or animal behavior, or using apps to identify different species in your local outdoor spaces. You can also use technology for non-environmental reasons, such as supporting students with disabilities. While it is perhaps good to take a break from technology and be fully present in nature where possible, we should not dismiss technology in the environmental educational field so easily. Now back to the interview. I think just expanding upon that, we've been doing interviews with cyberneticians and it's just been opening our minds to different areas. And one nutrition from America was saying that because they don't teach, philosophy isn't really taught. In America, it is to a certain extent, but there isn't even enough teachers to even give them a good grounding. Somehow we think that we can just study science without philosophy and it, it just seemed like it's so lacking. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that and how we can have more conversations across disciplines. Well, I think one of the things that the system that we use and we use a play of Einstein's equation and we use EMC squared. E for empathy, M for mindfulness, C for compassion, and the other C is for critical inquiry. Now, that's the intellectual, and then the other three are emotional. So it's a unique interplay between emotions and intellectual. And that's how the brain really works. It is all about creating neural networks across all the different parts of the brain. You know, some of them, are, of course, where the emotions reside, but the way that we finally decide and think is about the interplay between the two. And I think it's from the intellectual dimensions that, you know, in philosophy, and it's very broad, but it's about the whole concept of analyzing, looking at things. So logic plays a huge role. And in the old Indian education system, logic was taught as part of the curriculum. So in a way, you know, you can have the constructivism, positivism, and all different types of ways of analyzing problems. And I think that's how I see philosophy in a way that has not been taught these days. And so it becomes very mechanized and we don't question, you know, philosophers, they, they, there's always a joke. If you get philosophers, there's always a question of contention on everything that you say, but that's what it is. It's about questioning about the whole you know, cosmos of life and, and so forth and so on. So I'm a very strong believer that philosophy should be included. I did not have that privilege in my education system to have philosophy until I went to do my doctorate studies and then I took a class in logic. 
But even saying that, I have a degree which says doctor of philosophy in economics, but we never had philosophy as per se in the whole program. Even we have gone into so much of mathematical modeling and so forth that we don't read as part of the compulsory part of the course of some of the great fathers of economics like Adam Smith and so forth, which previously was required reading to understand that, and that becomes a philosophy. But yeah, yes, you're correct. I think it needs to be introduced at the very early stage, and it shouldn't be seen as an esoteric kind of thing that only people with great minds can take on. It should be ingrained in all of us. You mentioned that you sort of have done your economics degree, which I know you did in America. I was wondering if you could maybe touch on a little bit how this degree has shaped your outlook on the environment and how that has influenced sort of your teaching and has that encouraged you to be more cross-disciplinary, for example, or do you want to keep them, the environment as its own separate thing or trying to weave it into all sorts of different subjects? Great question. So I did my doctorate studies in economics, but when I finished all the exams and then you have to find a topic to do your dissertation on, And I still remember vividly sitting and watching PBS channel, I guess, where Tom Hansen was testifying before Congress and he from Goddard Space Center. And he says, we have a problem. And that was climate change. And this was in mid 80s. And it kind of perked my interest. And I said, hmm, so... How about looking at climate change and economics? What would that be? And so that was how my PhD. Now, to do that, I had to learn atmospheric science because I had to build a small climate change model. And then I had to link that model to the economic models. So how do you have variables from climate into the economics? How do you have economic variables into the climate? so that it is an integrated system. And I think that's something that we also need to start teaching our children is systems analysis, because the world is a systems. So that brought me to the whole notion of multidisciplinarity and how important it is that we can't just look at economics as per se, because it's so linked with the natural system. And so that got me interested into climate change And I then went on to Italy in Florence and worked at the European University Institute in terms of working with some of the early climate change economic models. And then went to the the National University of Singapore to develop course in environmental economics. But I had the privilege and freedom to integrate because, you know, I was teaching two courses, development economics and environmental economics. And when I teach development, there was nothing on environment. And when I teach environment, there was nothing on development. I was like saying, this is crazy because they're so interlinked. Because development economics, economic growth, that's what drives climate change. You need to bring those things. So I, I, I spent my time merging those two in a sense. In development economics, I made sure there was a good dose of environmental and the same thing uh, vice versa. And then I joined the UN, United Nations Environment Program, and was in Nairobi. And at that time, I, I started moving into biodiversity because that attracted me. I get bored very quickly, I have to admit it. Six years, I get bored. I want something new and challenging. And biodiversity 
it was out there and we were destroying species like nobody. They'd never seen before, you know, and nobody was aware of this. Just look at the pandemic. It has killed at this moment 3 million people of a global population of 7 billion. But we are one species. You know, people might think, no, I'm an American, I'm a British, I'm a Malaysian, or I'm uh, ethnicity, I'm Chinese. No, we are still biologically one species, right? And we have just lost 3 million out of 7 billion. But as a species, we are wiping out, and we have estimated that we're going to wipe out 1 million species over the next 10 years. That's morally corrupt. We can't do that, ethically wrong. And our children need to be told that. And so this is where my frustration is coming from, is that the education system is not doing a great job of getting this relationship with nature. The way we teach our children is always on how nature is used by us and why we need to conserve nature purely for our own self-interest. I think it's a starting point because we still are not recognizing it. But I finally realized that the relationship that indigenous communities have with nature is one of an emotional relationship. And it's not one purely on an instrumental use relationship. And that's what our environmental education needs to change to is to say that, so run a typical example, like if you see bees and ask the child, what do you think if you were one of those bees and you see all your brothers and sisters being killed? That's the reflective part, which remember I had talked about earlier as part of the social emotional learning from the other, to be reflective of the other. So let's be reflective of the other living being, not just our own species, but just imagine what it would feel like. Because I think science is starting to show they do have feelings. If they are living being, they must have feelings. Their lifespans may be shorter, some of them may be longer, but we need to relate with them on that emotional level. And that's one of the things that I have learned over the time that I've been at this institute for the last seven years, which has changed my thinking or my relationship with nature orthogonally, completely in a 90 degree change. Yes, it's completely because, of course, they have feelings. You can hear them cry. You can even hear, I believe they're saying the trees, you know, you can hear them crying or making a noise and plants as well. And that's a difficult one because we do, even if we have a vegan lifestyle, eat plants, but they have language. The animals, we just did an interview with the founder of PETA. Of course, they have language and feelings, but I'm glad that people are turning in, in their minds to maybe not have the indigenous perspective, but to understand the gifts of nature, it's a start and that we're guests on this planet.
and we have to live with animals. We have to respect where we live, our home. It seems like they're very simple observations. As you say, it takes us a while to learn them that all animals know, you know. You're talking about systems and so much about our systems. We always kind of assume, oh, it was always this way. We'll just follow. We'll keep on doing it the way it was. And that yet there's so many different ways of seeing the world and finding solutions from different corners, as you said. And I know that also a Kriti from your institute had mentioned that your son is dyslexic. And I was wondering how having a dyslexic son and being his teacher and just understanding the gifts that come with different perception has taught you? Well, unfortunately, I was not his teacher. He was my teacher. I think I learned more from him than he could from me. Well, maybe he learned how impatient human beings are. (laughs) It was a tough time because it was something new for us. So when he was very young, he he was struggling with school. We were kind of struggling what was going on. The teachers weren't helping. And in fact, one teacher actually used the word, he's dumb. He's a bit slow. But the one thing that he did that we said, no, I think you are slow is that when he does jigsaw puzzles, he does them upside down. Because when with the pictures, he say he finds that too boring. So he just puts it the other way. And then he looks at spatial patterns and he has a system. And I remember once we said, okay, we had two identical puzzles. And I said, who finishes first has to buy the other whatever they want, dinner. He loved food. He just loved food right from the very start. And so here I am trying to figure out the pieces and he just flips it all on the backside and he goes from outward inward. He had a a boom. And he finished it way before I did and I was still struggling. So, you know, this is not a dumb person, all right? So it's the system that's dumb and you can't take him. And then... And he was acting up because the poor guy was ostracized in school. The teachers were not very supportive. And then when we moved to Canada, the school was a lot more supportive. They got a special person to help him. But then they said, maybe you should tell. So we went to an educational psychologist. And within five minutes, he said, your son's dyslexic. And I'm going to say a few things about even that term. But so within the city that we were in Canada, the best we could do is to have a special teacher address him. But then I moved into the UN and we went to Nairobi and we went to the international school. They couldn't help him at all. And in fact, they were extremely negative. I think they did more damage to him than good. Then we found a school in New York, which only specialized in kids with with dyslexia. And I remember him flying with his mom to New York, upstate, and they tested him and stuff. And they said, you know, there's a long waiting list. They warned us that there's a long waiting list. But by the time they finished with him, they said, you know, this school was set up just for kids like him. So you can send him as early as what you want. We will make a space for him. And they promised me one thing. They said, when he graduates, we will give you back a confident young man who will be able to then maneuver the challenges in the world. So 
when he started doing chemistry, and I was like, oh God, chemistry. We, I was trying to convince him to do something because he, he, could, he could draw beautifully. And he, I wanted to move him into design and stuff. And, and one day he said, Papa, but I see chemistry. That's it. I said, if you see chemistry, you have to do chemistry because whoever sees chemistry. So that's what he's doing. What he has taught me is patience. He's taught me about seeing things in different perspective and seeing things in a positive light because they are very patient because of the nature of how they have to maneuver this crazy world that we have created, this competitive me, me world. They have learned how to be compassionate to other people. So that's why I say he has been my teacher and not the other way around. Now, we are doing an international science-based assessment of education. And there's a chapter uh, written by some of the world's best scientists on difference learning, which dyslexia comes. And one of the early uh, suggestions is that labeling these are not useful. What we should be doing is doing universal screening at specific times of the child's maturation based on brain maturation studies and identify where weaknesses are, strengths are, solidify the strengths and provide support for the weaknesses. If the person has a weaknesses in reading or comprehension, provide that support. Because we all have some weaknesses in certain parts. So let's get rid of dyslexia, dyscalculia, you having a problem with comprehension. That's what we will intervene with universal screening. I have a kind of firsthand experience with my husband is dyslexic and yet his ability to find solutions and patterns, as you say, you know, that's this man-made language that we have, that we all adapt and speak with and write with to greater or lesser ability. It is, as you say, one system, there are other languages. And it seems to me like chemistry is a much more complicated and mystifying language that I don't understand. I am not literate in it. And another interesting, and you've probably come across some of these solutions, but I saw that there's this, it's a software, there's a lot of different varieties of dyslexia, but there's a software, it's like a, just like a, a visualization for reading text for the computer screen, where the brain in many dyslexics is actually too quick, it's not slow, it's too quick, so the mind pushes the letters together, and you've seen this where it just, the, by increasing the spaces between each letter, it, the reading comprehension is just normal, perfect, uh, without problem? And that's where, that's where science plays such a big role and technology supports that. I remember when he went to school the first time, the mother refused to go. So I had the duty to leave a 14-year-old boy for the first time and come back home. She said she couldn't do that. But I remember they giving him a laptop and say, this is your tool that you have to protect and take care of because they had programs which were designed to help them. So, you know, technology really helped him in many ways. There were many programs that they had in terms of comprehension and, and so forth and so on. 
so this is why I am also very supportive of technology, but with due diligence is what I would always say. And he had fantastic teachers as well. So this is why I say teacher training is so important. Teacher compensation and recognition is so important. And what we are doing is we are just loading them up with too much of curriculum and all kinds of expectations and not providing the right kind of recognition that they should get. We got our priorities wrong. Let me put it this way. We were born, and this has been well-founded in science, that we were born to be empathetic. But we have been so intelligent that we have created a system to develop us as predators. That's how I see it. And, and now we don't know how to get out of it. So when, you know, when, when I go to schools and, and even at the UN, they're sort of saying, okay, so you know, what's the time frame? And I'm sort of saying two generations. <laughs> and I said, two generations. So in economics, when we do modeling, a generation is 25 years. So that's 50 years. I said, yeah, if we are lucky. But come on, we are looking at thousands of years of evolution. You know, Robert Sapolsky in his book, Behave, explains very well on the way where we are right now based on the evolution. But I think we are getting to a point of sophistication that we don't need the kind of predatorial behavior to survive anymore. We don't need that anymore. But we still have that primitive mode of survival ingrained in our genes and we need to change those. And I think with a lot of doses of social and emotional learning and over many years, and it has to be a lifelong exercise, I think within two to three generations, we will have a very different group of people who might reflect and look at us and say, crazy people. I think, yes, I think that we are designed to be collective. And although there is predatory behavior in nature, I grew up in a multi-generational family. Something about sharing resources and knowledge is in our nature. And I think it, it actually, if for pure survival, we have to work collectively and not just so competitively. It goes against our self-interest as well. And that's part of Darwin's theory as well. It wasn't the survival of the fittest, you know, when you really read into his stuff, he talks about collaboration and, and so forth. The, the thing that we have to now start thinking, and the pandemic has shown it so, has highlighted it so well, is how short-sighted we are and how inward we are. Where, you know, countries are closing borders, they're only looking after their own without realizing that the virus doesn't give a damn. And it just tickles and runs and it's gone over all over the world. We need to work together on this and we need to look at it as one humanity and, and work together as one unit. But we have not. And that's why we are suffering like this. We could have minimized it if we only thought of ourselves as one global family. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. The pandemic has definitely been an example of both our strengths and our weaknesses as a planet. <laughs> I was wondering if you could touch on maybe some more of the barriers to social emotional learning and what else do we have to overcome? Because as you said, it might take you 50 years to maybe get to where we want to. What are some of the actual barriers and problems that we have to overcome as a society or as educators to ensure that we can teach social emotional learning in a positive way? Well, I think the biggest barrier would be parents and mindsets, you know, because they are already entrenched into the fact that the kids have to secure a stable livelihood. 
and therefore they have to fit in within the system. But the young ones are always rebelling. And, and that's what kept us going, is that risk-taking behavior of the young. And if we can uh, turn that into a positive risk-taking, it'll be a great momentum. And if you think about it, systems have become so automated that common sense has been thrown out of the window, right? How many times have you, you know, come up to this and then the person responds and saying, sorry, but that's our rules. I said, yeah, but look at the situation right now. It doesn't make sense, but no, I'm sorry. The rules are rules. And so that's one of the biggest that the systems have become so entrenched and institutions are very slow to change. That's also well documented. So these are some of the, the biggest barriers that I see. Now, how do you overcome that? I would say it's going to be a long process. I'm not going to sort of be optimistic and say it's going to happen in two, three years. I put my eggs in the basket by focusing on the young. And that's why when you see the institutes work, we really are focusing on the K-12 from the children, pre-kindergarten to high school, and then after that with the youth because this is where you get the highest return on investment in terms of learning and learning new things and letting go of old things. And the, the older you get, the more difficult it is to move you from an entrenched position because of the security, fear of instabilities, and so forth and so on. But the young ones are where I think where we see the change. And I'm positive that, and if you see the momentum that they have driven on climate change, it's incredible. It's so heartening to see that. And I want to see them again, starting in terms of challenging on biodiversity. I want them to also start challenging in terms of accountability and responsibility from the people that they have chosen to manage and govern. And, and the good thing with the young is they are very impatient. They want change much faster. And so I'm hoping that temperament will be the change that we are looking for. And if we can provide the kind of tools so that they don't, they don't resort to violence, because violence doesn't get us anywhere. Although many people will say they've been pushed to a point where there is no other option but violence, no. I, I stick with Gandhi's concept that nonviolence is always the best weapon that you can have. It will pro produce results against those tyrants and autocrats who try to do otherwise. So I, I am a strong believer that social emotional learning would provide those kind of competencies that we need. And these are competencies that we have never been taught in school. We have always assumed that it will come from the community or from the home, but that's not happening because families breaking down, communities are breaking down. And so it has to be within the education system where it's systematically be part of our education systems. A wonderful example. And you have other initiatives. I think people can sign up for the Blue Dot. Just tell us about a few of the different programs and how people can get involved. Well, the, the Blue Dot is a publication. And, and we also have a section on youth voices where we go out and get from the youth. We also provide the opportunity for youth authors, up and coming budding authors who want to write something, which tends to maybe challenge the norms and stuff. So we allow that. Of course, then the kindness campaign. 
And there's this big initiative, which actually started off by the youth themselves, is to have, have an international day of kindness, where rather than having rhetorical speeches and great declarations and so forth and so on, is to actually get everybody to do one act of kindness, starting right from the head of state down to the layperson on the road, one act of kindness on that one particular day. So if you have a country of 1.38 billion people in India, we would have, a, well, let's put the really young ones out there, we would have at least 1 billion acts of kindness. Add China to that, 2 billion acts of kindness. All right, for one day, at least for one day, I think it will make an impact. So that's one of the initiatives that we really are pushing on. Then we have the preventing violent extremism, and we want to have the youths talk about their challenges and what attracts them and sort of asking them to provide the solutions to prevent other young people from being attracted to these organizations that are looking to recruit them for their own ends and purposes. And we have young people actually driving that whole initiative rather than old cronies like me and others. Then we have the digital pedagogy. So young teachers or young people who are aspiring to go into the teaching profession uh, in terms of providing them with the tools for the 21st century, not ICT. We make a distinction between ICT and digital pedagogies because the whole notion of using the digital field uh, medium as a transformative change is very different from just using it as a transmission of knowledge, which is very boring and one way process. Yeah, but these are the, some of the main things that we do. We do a lot with uh, schools in uh, K-12, but the, these are some of the main ones that we have. Yeah. Well, that's already quite a lot. I think it really covers every aspect of education. I would even would like to go into when you're talking about violence and what your views are on incarceration and things like that. You know, how can we even improve those systems? I, I was tempted, and I did actually, because there's this whole discussion in the U.S. about police brutality and what's going on. And I sent an email to Chris Cuomo and saying, why don't you bring in some social emotional educators or psychologists to be part of the police training programs? So balance it up in a sense of trying to understand the perpetuator, what's driving them and so forth. That might be part of their training programs, be a necessary and compulsory part. And it's just not a one-off continual. So you go for refresher training programs every year. I've written op-eds, which I have recommended that right from the very top of governance, that social emotional learning programs should be compulsory. So if you get elected as a prime minister, the first thing you have to do is go for a 10-week course in social emotional learning. And then you need to do a refresher course every year and so forth for his cabinet or for her cabinet and for all the sector ministries and so forth. I think it's so true because really, well, hopefully, I guess even the end goal would be that it becomes so ingrained and natural that we don't need to have the lessons. But until that point, I think we'd all need to be refreshed. As you say, the police system, I think that there have been um, studies on it as well. Sometimes when police are more a part of society where communities understand that they're to protect, then they're respected, then there's a care, there's a family and that we're all just looking after each other. But when the people are divided, even 
and like the garbage collectors, they need to be seen as part of the society. They need to be respected. And I think that that violence will go away when there's better training and the whole person and the whole community is addressed. And they're under immense pressure. I can understand that. It's not a life to be a police officer, not knowing what to expect. They're under immense stress and pressure. And they must have this kind of a support system where the, the whole notion of emotion regulation, mindfulness activities become part of their daily process in the sense of taking time out uh, for themselves within their ships so that they can reflect and to de-stress because it's so important. And the same thing for so many occupations. And we don't get the time to do that. And I think it's important. Well, you've given us wonderful models, uh, wonderful initiatives, and uh, just a great uh, example for how we can transform not just our educational models, but so many aspects of society and our systems. So I want to uh, thank you, Anantha Duryapa, for all you have done to contribute to the development of transformational education, the encouragement of empathy, and to the UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for peace and sustainable development for your many programs and projects. Thank you for adding your voice to the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. One Planet podcast is produced by the Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Megan Luff with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Megan Luff. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcasts and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.